from India's largest newsroom, I'm Arun George, and this is the Times of India podcast. In the past few weeks, ed tech or education technology firms have been making headlines, but not for the reasons they'd like. Many are laying off employees after massive hiring over the past few years, while some are shutting shop. As schools and colleges reopen for physical classes, that extra online class that was being marketed by a Bollywood actor or cricket star suddenly isn't as essential. Deblina Majumdar has been tracking the education sector for years and writes about it for the Economic Times. In today's episode, she explains why we're witnessing this massive churn, how it will settle and which edtech firms are most likely to succeed. Devlina, what explains what we're seeing in the education tech space currently with mass layoffs and questions being raised also over the viability of many firms? One is when the pandemic started, even before that, education and edtech, you know, people were talking about. But edtech specifically, originally had been an area where there was a lot of questions around Is education for all free? What is the role of philanthropic capital, impact investment, or private capital? So if you see the role of private capital in education, or in edtech specifically, is not a very old phenomenon. It is quite recent in the last few years. And of course, some of the largest funded companies, as they grew, this became higher and higher. The pandemic was a shift, or I would say a massive uh, kind of move towards people not having access to digital, not having access to physical education, and therefore having to uh, automatically move towards digital education. This author called Morgan Housel, who writes on finance and behavioral science, he spoke about two kinds of shift, temporary shift and permanent shift. He didn't talk about education. But when I was thinking from the context of education, what I realized is that this shift towards digital education, which is enabled because schools and institutions had to be closed. Was that really a temporary shift or a permanent shift? And I think for many people, starting right from investors, people overestimated the temporariness of that shift. They probably thought it was far more a permanent shift than it really would be, right? Because if you look at it, trust is the most important thing in education. And often that trust comes from the institution, especially in the K-12 space. So if you look at the fact that right now, obviously institutions have been opening back up and there are two things happening there. First, the people would overestimate the impact of digital education and the need for digital education obviously have to scale back and they had unnecessarily scaled up too fast, too quickly. Some of that scale back is happening. The second part, which is even more important, is that the share of time, imagine a single student who was during the pandemic, probably at home, now going back to school until three o'clock, four o'clock, then coming back. How much share of time does that person have to A, do additional classes, then hobby classes, then coding, etc.? That's another very important thing. So all of these companies, they were all fighting for the same share of time. That itself has also got a little uh, constrained right now. And third is, and I think which is the underlying shift, which is a far more permanent shift than this uh, earlier temporary shift I talked about is a new education policy, which was announced even before the pandemic. And this is a year actually the starting to get implemented across different states. And the NEP has made some really remarkable uh, kind of improvements and enhancements in the education system where they have talked about more focus on foundational learning. They've talked about reducing the focus on board exams. 
which is a large reason for a lot of the test preps. So these are foundational and very permanent ships. Now within this, certain companies had massively kind of overestimated the impact of the digital temporary shift. And therefore, they had spent a lot of money on um, setting up new areas, which maybe were not core, right? Like a company doing higher education, suddenly getting into K-12 and then shutting it down. Too fast growth in too many areas and therefore too fast hiring for that. And also too much of money spent on customer acquisition and marketing. So some of those are corrections we are seeing right now. But I don't think it's blanket and uniform. Um, and a lot of it probably is because of the pressure on growth put in by the funders. And I think company by company, case by case, we have to see you know, where is it happening and where is it not happening. And there are many companies in education and edtech which are not VC funded. I call them the quieter edtechs, which we don't hear about. Um, many of them are still you know, continuing and doing a remarkable job as well. A lot of it was this overestimation of what would happen due to the pandemic. But uh, how did they change what they were doing? What were the biggest shifts you felt you saw since 2020? There were two, three big shifts which I saw. One was that, um, see, before the pandemic, uh, there were companies where they were working with institutions. And there were also companies that were working directly to students, directly students and parents. Now, in the early part of the pandemic, what I saw is when the companies were not sure about the institution closures, they were still trying to figure it out and see you know, what are the ways in which learning can continue. Um, the investor interest, uh, some of it went more towards on the B2C side, right, which is directly to the customers. right, And that's where I think it's linked to the overestimation. Whereas what I see now, again, especially on the K-12 side, is working with the institutions is still very, very important, right? Because that is where the trust gets formed. We are reading again about this. A lot of companies going back to either working with institutions or going back to physical forms of learning as well and not purely depending on online. Apart from that, I think I saw some of the companies get into too many new categories too quickly. So they had very good, say, presence in test prep. Suddenly they got into, say, K-12. Or they had very good presence in, say, K-12, suddenly they got into something else. So that category shift, uh, it's not easy in education because every category shift means your target segment is different, your curriculum is different, your learning methodology is different. Um, it takes a lot of work. But I think because of the, because of the pressure to earn and to kind of uh, give back some of the investments in the time horizon the investors had, um, some companies expanded very, very rapidly, right? One classic area... I would say it's coding, right? Um, suddenly, all the companies started having coding classes. And if you see that has kind of come down in the last couple of years, but it's still there, but it's not, you know, the be all and end all, which, had, it, which it had become. There's another, I would say, gray area, which, um, which really needs to be tackled and which is the allegations of mis-selling, uh, which certain companies had, right? Where they were making very tall promises and... Um, and also probably the financing aspect where loans were kind of uh, given to actually take some of these courses. That is a part which I think was a little bit uh, unfair on a part of the few companies which did that, uh, especially like I mentioned, because in education, it's all about trust. Education has the capacity to transform lives and therefore parents do end up believing and uh, you know making choices on products for their kids. And therefore, the trust needs to be extremely high when you know they're making a choice like that. So I want to 
press about one aspect here, which is about those coding classes, very niche classes that came in. Uh, you know, it's not like those things don't have demand, but what explains what went so wrong so quickly for them? Let's say K-12 first. In K-12, we have about 250 to 60 million children studying in grades, you know, K-12 grades. Out of these kids, about 70% study in government schools, 30% study in your private schools. Out of this 30%, again, about 80% of them actually study in low-income budget private schools. And the balance, 10 to 20% only, study in the expensive private schools. Now, almost all the companies which were operating with these specific classes, because the pricing which they had, right, and the language, often being English or maybe maximum one or two other languages, they were catering to the same segment of students, right, and parents. And those are the parents and students who had the purchasing power to sit at home during COVID and, you know, kind of go in for these classes, which is all well and good, right? But imagine everybody kind of vying for the same share of the pie. That was one problem. The pie was not so big. And the other part of it was what would happen to the pie when institutions opened back, right? Because I might want to go to a physical guitar class now, right? Compared to probably learning guitar online. And also if I have three hours, I might choose, you know, maybe swimming over guitar. I may not do both. So some of them were actually um, catering in a market which was already crowded and not that big. But because of the euphoria, um, there was a lot more, I would say, uh, positive perception about that market, right? So this is uh, one aspect. But on the other side, if you look at the higher education and the skilling segment, it's a very different scenario there. Like I mentioned, 27% of the people actually go to colleges. And what happens to the balance? The people who don't get to go to colleges, what happens to them, right? So what are the skilling pathways which are open for them? And who is helping there? And even the ones who are going to college and getting a job, because of the amount of technology disruption we're seeing among, uh, you know, around us, many of them, when they go to jobs you know, at successive levels, they have to keep upskilling themselves. Now, certain times, some companies are very good in arranging this kind of training and certification. But of course, it's on us as individuals to keep upskilling ourselves. And therefore, in many of these new age areas, whether it's marketing or data science or even coding at that level or you know, even communication, you would see many more people actually trying to sign up for classes which would help them upskill themselves. And that happened. And that, I think, is a trend where people at that, at that level are able to pay, right? Their paying capacity is there. They are choosing things which will actually help them improve their career, improve their employability, and improve their, uh, um, you know, their uh, ability to get more money and even shift careers. So I think, um, I would say, in a way, we have underestimated that. That is a more long-term shift. And that is an ongoing shift because of the power of technology and, you know, the way jobs and careers are completely getting reshaped. That will continue happening. I wouldn't say everybody has made um, similar mistakes. Some companies actually have been uh, following this pathway and doing it very well. Another thing that we've seen more recently is the fact that these online companies have ventured into big buyouts of offline classes like Akash and Allen. Um, what explains these companies deciding to do that? So I think, see, acquisition is a natural part of growth in many sectors. And I don't think by itself there's anything wrong, right? Because it also gives exits to companies at different stages of growth. So if you see last couple of years, anything even before that, some acquisitions have been made for 
purely market share, right? So we are in this particular segment of test prep. In test prep, we have ABC categories. This D category we don't have. Let's not build. Let's buy. So those are one kind of acquisitions. Um, now that could be online or offline, right? So if you look at some of the acquisitions you mentioned, Arun, the reason was that there was a very strong hold those companies had in certain markets, in certain geographies, in certain areas. And even the companies did not acquire, you know, physical classroom-based solutions. If you see now, after the pandemic, a lot of them have gone back and they have opened hybrid classes, right? And on the other side, a lot of the quota institutes also, I think, went online during the pandemic, right? So they also had their digital classes. So I think the way of learning becoming more combination and not purely offline or purely online is a separate part of the story. And uh, that's probably going to, going to stay. But apart from that, companies, when they acquired, um, you know, what did they acquire for? Did they acquire a coding company which just gave them a new segment? Or did they try to acquire a company which is operating in a, bringing a new technology to them, right? So those were some of the underlying questions I was trying to understand. And what I realized also is in some of the cases, um, the overall offering was not emerging. It was buying multiple parts of the pieces and then trying to figure out, you know, what's the overall offering. There are certain companies that have done it very intelligently. Um, I've seen Upgrad, for example, look at some of their acquisitions. They have taken a value chain approach. That, I think, is, a, is an interesting approach because it helps you kind of serve more of the customer's need in that same journey. Rather than trying to constantly target new segments of customers and then discovering their need. Acquisitions are difficult to integrate. So some of the layoffs which you talked about in the very beginning is also because a lot of acquisitions are happening, have happened, and people are now trying to rationalize the teams, right? They have, you know, probably teams for technology, teams for curriculum, teams for sales, marketing, and some of the rationalization is also happening now, which is adding to the already existing pressure of having overestimated the market and the uh, digital impact. And in terms of edtech firms themselves, from here, where do you see them going? I think that's the most important question, right? So there are three things I feel, Arun. One is, there are companies which have been growing before pandemic, grown during pandemic, and will continue to grow after the pandemic, right? Um, some of them are not that big. They're not unicorns. They probably haven't even taken VC funding, but they have a solid set of customers and you know they are growing profitably. Interestingly, a lot of people did not know about Physics Wala before you know, the funding round and the status which happened, right? So there are many companies like that in education and in edtech. See, the fundamental thing in education is teaching, good quality teaching. If you have good quality teaching and a good way to deliver that and you don't overpromise, but you actually deliver that, people will come, right? And that's a fundamental need because we have a country of so many young people who need to learn. So there will be those that will continue. For companies which are overestimated the digital impact and which probably some of them within that, I would say segment, who had also probably not had kept their expenses in check in terms of marketing expenses or resourcing expenses, there is definitely a rationalization. So that will happen. The third part is, newer areas will emerge for growth. And I think that's the most interesting part. Like I mentioned, in the skilling side, in the higher education segment, um, there is more work on, which is happening. On the assessment side, more work is happening. Um, last year, for example, there were certain tools which came up, 
which helped creators go online and teach. So you didn't need a platform. If you're a good teacher, you could set up your class online and go and teach, right? So Class Plus, for example, was doing that and companies like Class Plus, like TeachMint, et cetera. I also see regional language focused learning, right? Which um, we all expected would be done by some of these companies, but um, I mean, few of them did it, not all of them. That is again, another segment which could grow. Last, and this is not something I uh, thought, but it was shared with me by one of the EdTech founders is what we are seeing right now is not new, right? Every every sector is going through this where you have to be profitable to finally grow. You can have a period of growth, which is completely very, very high growth where profits are not keeping in the match with the growth. But after that, you have to have profitability. Long-term, profitable growth is required. And EdTech is no exception. So there was a period, I think, where there was a lot of um, investor interest. In fact, we used to joke about it, saying that education was a sector which none of the mainstream imp- mainstream investors, you know, earlier wanted to look at, right? And therefore, impact investors came in and they kind of looked at education investment and philanthropists. But then there was a period when suddenly all these large edtechs you see all had the mainstream VCs, consumer tech VCs on their cap table, right? And these VCs, some of them actually do not understand the education sector. They don't have that in-depth understanding of what can you know make this kind of shift in education. Because um, the growth in education is very different compared to growth of a standard consumer tech company. So I think a group of companies would emerge from this, which are far more cost-efficient and focused on the value, which is student learning outcomes. Finally, all education companies have to care about that, which is student learning outcomes. So does that mean we're going to see this churn for a while now until this sort of settles down? So I think natural churn will settle down. I think some of this will settle down after one or two funding cycles. But what I I think and many of us in the sector are worried about is in case there is any of the large companies which have other underlying issues, which could be around revenue accounting or you know, which could be around larger issues of mis-selling. We don't know that yet, right? But in case that happens, uh, then of course, there'll be a trickle-on effect to the other companies in the sector. And the reason is because the entire sector is built on trust with parents and students. While you talk about 10-minute delivery models, education is more than a 10-year delivery model because the changes which probably teachers are teaching students right now, they will realize, except in test prep, which is more immediate, but in many other cases, like foundational learning or learning a skill, et cetera, it would take many years for that to be actually showing in the value of a person's livelihood or career. So given that, we need companies which are stable. We need companies that are long-term. We cannot have fly-by-night operators in education. So I think um, it's very important, therefore, to kind of show and understand which companies are working for the long-term and for uh, student learning outcomes, and then help them do better. Diblina says that the one thing that many have misunderstood is the complexity of the education sector and how some of the biggest learning companies have been built. I think it's a, it's a very complex sector and uh, you know that's why probably you know uh, the companies which have done really well have been doing this for ages. They've really taken one small problem in the sector and they've done it for ages. Very honestly, in learning, if somebody wants to be a self-learner, you can find your learning on YouTube. It's amazing the amount of content you can get just in YouTube and the free resources. You know, there's amazing amount of learning available. 
the issue in education and this is my learning having worked in the sector for a long time is many people most of us are not self learners education is hard for us so we need someone who will guide us and that's the role the teacher plays and therefore a good teacher is you know fundamental in education and many of the edtechs actually were started off with people who were in first grade teachers right they were known to be great teachers they pulled students in they are also like storytellers because they could hold audience and then they scaled it right so the power of the teacher is immense in education so now what i feel is given this dynamic dance between the student who may not yet be a uh, self learner and this teacher who is like a guide come storyteller how does the platform play a role in enabling this i think that's the fundamental core and companies which are cracking this i think have a long role to play today's episode was produced by jairaj singh sunai marathe and anuja singh for a daily spotlight on people ideas and stories that matter subscribe to us we're available on ty plus spotify apple google podcasts and all other platforms of your choice for any news tips email us at tuipodcast@timesinternet.in